for me, I have to have enough self-control not to necessarily go out every Friday and Saturday night, but some weekends I just have to work on my business and have the self-control to avoid a lot of the distractions that can stop you from creating a great business. Some practical tips I'd like to give entrepreneurs that have full-time jobs or are in school is you can add 40 hours to your work week pretty simply. Anytime you're an entrepreneur growing a company, the biggest problem you're going to run into is... You know, I read this book one time that said the most productive and successful people keep a to-do list. The top six things they need to accomplish the next day. Don't give up. The only thing that will separate uh, successful entrepreneurs from entrepreneurs that fail is persistence. Hey everyone, my name is Sean Patel and I'm the founder of Prep Expert SAT and ACT Preparation. I pitched the company on Shark Tank a few years ago and closed a deal with Mark Cuban. I'm really excited to share some of my entrepreneur stories and my journey with you today. And how old are you and where are you located? I'm 29 years old and I'm located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania currently. Okay. So are you quite the mover? I would say so. Yeah, that's an accurate assessment. I grew up in Las Vegas, actually. That's where I'm originally from. And that's where my company is still based out of. And I lived for almost 10 years in Los Angeles going to school, both for undergraduate and medical school. And I'm currently now in Philadelphia pursuing dermatology residency. I would say quite the mover is an understatement. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your company and what we want to talk about today? What's it called? And then again, it sounds like you got actual funding from people on Shark Tank, specifically Mark Cuban. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I never really wanted to be an entrepreneur. My original goal was after I was in high school, you know, I raised my SAT score from average to perfect. And the way that I did that is I locked myself in the library for an entire summer and essentially self-studied my way to a perfect SAT score, which totally changed my life. I mean, I got into amazing colleges. I got a half a million dollars in scholarship offers. I even got to meet the president of the United States. When I got to college, I wanted to help other students change their lives with their scores the way that I did. And so my goal originally was to write an SAT prep book, but that ended up not working out. I made a book proposal and pitched it to 100 literary agents and publishers, and every single one said, you know, it wasn't going to work. That's when I took my destiny into my own hands. I essentially took the material that I was writing for the book and turned it into a prep course. And the students in the first SAT prep course I ever taught had amazing results with the curriculum. I mean, they had close to 400 point average improvements, which was equivalent to taking a student from the 50th percentile to the 90th percentile. You know, I had parents knocking down the door for more classes. And so now we have a company where my first class had 18 students in it to a company that now we have 20,000 students a year going through our classes, which are SAT and ACT prep classes. It's almost all done online. And it's been an incredible journey, especially as you mentioned, when I went on Shark Tank a few years ago. Yeah. And it's funny because I've watched a lot of those episodes and we've had quite a few founders from, from Shark Tank like on here as far as companies that got funded. And I always enjoyed yours. I remember seeing it several years ago. But in case anyone missed it, so what was the name of the actual company? And can you tell us, give us about how many students come through, but what are revenues like and how do you maintain this business? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the name of the company is Prep Expert. What's interesting was when I pitched on on Shark Tank, the name of the company was 2400 Expert. I changed the name because the SAT, when I took it, was on a 2400 scale rather than a 1600 scale. But shortly after I aired on Shark Tank, they changed it back to the 1600 version of the SAT. So we changed the name of the company to Prep Expert, which I think was good because we are able to do more than just SAT now. And we do ACT and some GMAT classes as well. In terms of revenue numbers, I mean, prior to Shark Tank, we were doing about a half a million dollars in sales a year. Post Shark Tank, we now do about $6 million in sales a year. So, I mean, it's over 10x growth, which has been pretty amazing. I mean, we had a total sales of about a million dollars prior to Shark Tank. And after Shark Tank, we've now done over $20 million in sales of our courses, our books, and our licensed products. So it's been an amazing ride. And how many people work for the Prep Expert? Yeah. So we have 10 full-time employees, as well as 20 part-time instructors who teach our classes. So about 30 people total. And that's in comparison to prior to Shark Tank, you know, I had just one full-time employee and two instructors. So a lot of growth since I've been on the show. And I mean, the didn't want to gloss over, obviously, when you were saying you're quite the mover, obviously you're doing something else other than running the prep expert right now. Yeah. And that was the biggest issue on Shark Tank is that when I was on the show, all of the sharks were concerned. At that time, I was still in graduate business school and graduate medical school. I was doing a combined MD, MBA program. And they were like, how can you be in school? Do you continue to pursue being a doctor? How can you run the company? And I'm happy to say that since I've been on the show, I graduated business school, I graduated medical school, and I'm still pursuing being a doctor. Although I have my medical degree and I finished that, I'm specializing in dermatology, which is a three-year residency program. And so that's where I'm at now in Philadelphia at Temple University Hospital. And so I have two more years left until I can prove the sharks completely wrong that you can be a physician and an entrepreneur. And so why did you want to do this interview today? Yeah, you know, I really wanted to share my story as an entrepreneur who is able to do more than one thing. You know, I think that I had a lot of people rooting for me on Shark Tank when the sharks completely rejected me. I shouldn't say completely rejected me because Mark Cuban did end up giving me an investment deal. But I had a lot of people rooting for me because I think people can relate to running a business or wanting to run a business or wanting to start a business while being in school, while having a full-time job. And I've really been able to make that happen. You know, I've been able to grow the business and oversee the business as I've been doing all of these other things between school and residency. So I think that I really wanted to share with other entrepreneurs, like some of the strategies I use and some of my story on how I've been able to do both. Just a quick overview. I mean, how the hell can you do both? That was one of my main questions, you know, coming in this interview. I'm imagining you must be amazing being time efficient to be able to go to these. I mean, not only like just medical schools, these are high-end medical schools and be able to, again, I don't know what your day-to-day is like in prep expert versus actually going to school. So can you just break this down for us, how you're even able to manage that today? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely can't take all of the credit for being able to do both. I have to give a lot of credit to my 10 full-time employees who run the day-to-day operations at Prep Expert, everything from customer service, sales, teaching classes, etc. At this point, you know, I really do business strategy. 
and some management. But overall, the day-to-day details are taken care of by the employees. So, I mean, that's huge. Having an amazing team. But obviously, I wasn't always like that. I did have to work those 80 to 100 hour weeks that every entrepreneur talks about for a long time. And what I would do is spend a lot of my summers, my vacations, my winter breaks while I was in school, just working on the company 80 to 100 hours a week. Now, the way that I split my time and sort of my day-to-day schedule is my full-time work. So is really the dermatology clinic and residency. I'm usually there between 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., just like a normal nine to five job, Monday through Friday. On nights and on weekends, is when I work on Prep Expert, when I do the marketing, when I do the management, when I do the strategy for Prep Expert. And some practical tips I'd like to give entrepreneurs that have full time jobs or are in school is you can add 40 hours to your work week pretty simply. I mean, one thing that I would always do is work weekends, right? I treat my weekends like my weekdays for my business. If you work eight hours a day on Saturday and eight hours a day on Sunday, that's an extra 16 hours. When I really have to get work done, I will even sleep less. Most people sleep eight hours a day. I'll sleep six sometimes to give myself an additional 14 hours a week. And then I'll work after hours. I mean, sometimes I'll work four five hours after I come home from dermatology residency on the business. And if you're efficient with that, that can be just as productive as an eight-hour day that most people are working. Any tips on being efficient and being able to do this? Because I think a lot of us feel guilty sometimes that we didn't get enough accomplished that we wanted to that day, but it seems maybe this is one of your quote-unquote like superpowers. I'm trying to distill like what we could learn from you, at least in this aspect of being able to juggle multiple things. Because again, there could be a lot of people listening right now who have a job, or maybe they finally saved up some money and they want to start doing something on the side. So the more tips that you have that maybe kind of help them in starting their business, the better for us. Yeah, absolutely. Just some tips around productivity. You know, one thing that I found, I think the biggest distractor to us, especially, you know, I'm a millennial, for example, I think the biggest distractor can often be your phone. I mean, we're getting notifications. You know, I love social media just as much as the next person. And so oftentimes when I go to work, quote unquote, work in the office that I have, I leave my phone behind because I just don't want to be distracted by it. And I find my productivity often is double. You know, obviously, if you need your phone for phone calls and things like that, that's different. But I try to work on tasks that I wouldn't need my phone with me. Another thing I try to do is keep the internet off if I can. Obviously, many people run businesses, including myself, that are primarily online. You you need the internet for certain things. But for example, if I'm writing curriculum for the SAT course, or if I'm writing a book, or if I'm putting together a proposal, a lot of these things don't necessarily require the internet. And by keeping the internet off, it prevents me from, again, going on social media, going on news articles, getting distracted. That has always really helped me stay very productive. And if you can't turn the internet off, I would say try to not have your email open. You know, one thing I do is I really batch my emails. I treat email like I do business mail, like ground mail. Basically, I reply in two to three business days. And that's not to be rude to anyone who's sending me emails. But I just think that emails can, again, be such a distraction to your productivity. If all you're doing all day is replying to emails, it's hard to get any real work done. Obviously, there are some urgent emails. For example, when I got an email yesterday from Mark Cuban, I will respond to that immediately. But you know, other than the urgent emails, most emails don't need to be responded right away. So I probably spend less than three to five hours on email a week. And I think that's less than just about anyone because I batch them and I'm not constantly on my phone or constantly on my computer emailing back and forth. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. 
but you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. One of the features that I find most valuable on LinkedIn jobs is being able to target someone in your geographic area. LinkedIn jobs screens candidates with the right hard and soft skills you're looking for, so you can hire the right person fast. Things like collaboration, creativity, adaptability. LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and connects you with candidates who match your business perfectly. That's how LinkedIn can make sure your job post gets in front of people you want to hire. People with the skills, qualifications, and other insights that help LinkedIn paint a better picture of potential candidates. It's no wonder great candidates are hired every eight seconds on LinkedIn. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash millionaire. Again, that's linkedin.com slash millionaire to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Well, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with professional counselors in a safe and private online environment, and you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your online therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. BetterHelp is available worldwide with over 3,000 USA licensed therapists that you can talk with about any issues and anything you share is confidential. Best of all, it's truly an affordable option. Millionaire interview listeners can get 10% off your first month with discount code millionaire. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com forward slash millionaire. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com forward slash millionaire. Do you use like a tool or something like whenever you get on the internet? Because the only issue is I'm good at closing out my Outlook. I won't use that. I'm good at silencing my phone. I've heard of certain tools. I don't know if there's any ones that you use to like keep you from going to certain sites. I mean, I'm pretty good, I think, overall about not going to them. But again, any insights you have on to that? Because if I'm working on certain things, not email, it's not that I have to go Google a lot. It's that there's certain programs that are almost all web-based now that I have to use. That's one of the biggest issues is that there are so many web-based tools that are required for your work. And unfortunately, I don't use a particular software that prevents me from getting on certain websites or things that would distract me. But one thing that I do love is a piece of software that I really like is the Notes app on Apple. And if you don't like that, you could use Evernote. But I think that really helps me keep a to-do list of you know, I read this book one time that said the most productive and successful people keep a to-do list, the top six things they need to accomplish the next day. And so for me, it's very hard for me to forget anything because the notes app is both on my phone and my computer. And so my to-do list of the top six things I need to do the next day is front of mind. And if I need to add or move or change anything, I can quickly do it in between clinic or at lunch and uh, make sure that I get the top six things I need to do for that day done. I don't want to depress anyone because it sounds like you've got everything almost figured out, huh? Not at all. I mean, I think I've gone through a lot of failures throughout my entrepreneurship journey. One of them I mentioned was getting rejected by the book deal by like 100 literary agents and publishers. And what's funny is they actually came back, McGraw-Hill, the world's largest education publisher, after they saw what I was building, prep expert, in the classes I was teaching. 
they ended up giving me a book deal. That book ended up going number one on Amazon for SAT prep. I had sold over 50,000 copies. You know, I think that a lot of times I've hit the wall and I thought like, you know, I I'm going to quit. There's nothing that's going to keep me going because a hundred people said this isn't going to work. But I think for the entrepreneurs out there listening, one of the big sort of takeaways that I wanted to give them from this interview was failure is the necessary evil of entrepreneurship. A lot of people do say that to me. They say that you've got it all or you've got it figured out or you're so successful or whatever it may be. But that is not true. That only looks like that from the outside because I have the scars of failures over and over and over again as I've gone through this. And I just kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. So for those that are failing out there that it's not working right now, don't give up. The only thing that will separate uh, successful entrepreneurs from entrepreneurs that fail is persistence. And so the book, when you tried coming out with that, how long ago was that? And I usually try to do chronological, but obviously you're pretty younger, 29 today, and then company's about nine years old or so. When was the book deal? Because obviously, like you said, that was kind of a hurdle that you couldn't actually get someone to help you publish it. Yeah, this was actually at the very beginning. So this was back in 2010, before I even started the company, because back in 2010, self-publishing was not necessarily a huge thing. It existed, but still the primary way of publishing books was to go through a major publisher for your distribution and promotion. And that's really at the very, very beginning before I had a platform. I mean, the biggest reason I got rejected by literary agents and publishers is they said I didn't have a platform to write the book. I didn't have any business. I wasn't doing anything. Why was I the person to write SAT prep other than I got the SAT prep book other than I got a perfect score on the SAT? They, they didn't think that was enough. And so you have to stop waiting for handouts. I think that's another big takeaway and lesson is at the very beginning of any entrepreneur's journey, I think for me, I was waiting for a handout. I was waiting for someone to hand me the book deal hand me the keys to the kingdom to build my platform. But I think people need to stop waiting for handouts and stop waiting for other people to make it happen for them in their entrepreneurial journey and just start making it happen themselves. And you'll be surprised at how many handouts start coming your way. For me, for example, I just stopped waiting for a book deal and I started these classes up and they're like all the keys opened. I had more parents and students signing up for courses. It was way better revenue than the book. And then the book came as a handout. It just randomly, when I stopped asking for it, because I was starting to make things happen. And so I think that's another big takeaway for entrepreneurs is if your roadblock is because you are waiting on someone else to give you something to make something happen, I would say that you need to figure out another way to go to your destination if there's a roadblock there and maybe even create your own road is kind of what I'm saying. Hopefully a lot of people are entrepreneurs, like every business was started because of that, right? Because if you just wait, nothing's going to happen. You have to actually be proactive. I think being proactive is the number one thing. And that's obviously what you're able to do to get on Shark Tank and start your company. But do you want to tell us about some of the biggest hurdles that you had to deal with in the beginning? Because again, I guess you were about 20 when you actually started the prep expert. Yeah, absolutely. One of the big hurdles or challenges that I think that I went through when I was first starting the company is something that a lot of entrepreneurs actually go through, which is hiring your family or starting a business with your family. For me, like I said, I was in medical school when I was first starting the business or I was starting medical school, I should say. You know, I needed an administrator to help me enroll students, take phone calls, do some of the marketing. And at the beginning, I didn't have really any money. I mean, I started the company with $900 of leftover scholarship money I had from college. So I didn't really have much to pay anyone. And we were running off revenue. 
And of course, I thought, well, my cousin's really great at details and talking to people. So I was like, why don't I hire her and have her work on the business? And eventually as the business grew, you know, we started paying her more and more. Just as when you work with any family is we eventually got into a dispute about equity, which is she wanted quite a bit of equity in the company. I obviously didn't want to give up that much. And so the amount of equity I offered her actually was, I thought, pretty generous, which would be worth millions of dollars today, actually. It didn't seem to be enough for her. And one of the challenges there is I think it kind of soured our relationship as family. And so my advice to entrepreneurs out there is if you're thinking about starting a company with a family member or a close friend, it's usually not a good idea. I mean, I have seen some businesses work, especially when it's spouses, but oftentimes I think it's better off to hire employees and keep business business and professional relationship is professional and familiar and friend relationships more personal. And was this your sister or a cousin? She was my cousin, but I mean, she was as close as a cousin as you can get. I mean, pretty much like my sister. She lived with me and my parents for years in our home. You know, I really considered her a sister, although blood-wise, we were cousins. Right. Do y'all talk now? Is everything okay? Yeah, we're really lucky that we've repaired our relationship over the years and we are close. But, you know, I think that the big takeaway I took from that is I don't think I'm going to ever start a company or hire anyone at my company that is my family or that is a close friend that I would consider almost my family because I think that it can really sour any relationship. So yeah, sounds like finally I hear like one regular failure from you. Because honestly, like I said, you seem like a wonder kid as far as at least with the SAT stuff and then going to med school, just everything kind of working out. What are some of the other hardest moments that you barely get to share that you know people don't think of or that you didn't think of when starting your business? Because you probably didn't think about that with your cousin. I think most of us go in with a positive mindset, think everything's going to be okay. But there's obviously other hurdles. Yeah, absolutely. Another big rejection that I went through, and it wasn't really a personal rejection like the family thing, but it was, again, when I was trying to work out a big licensing deal for Prep Expert, what happened was it was a real challenge, actually, which was I was trying to license our courses out to a larger company to essentially increase the distribution of our online courses. And the problem was McGraw-Hill claimed the copyright to all of my material. And they wouldn't essentially authorize the license to the company. And they were essentially putting a stop on a seven-figure deal, seven-figure licensing deal. And so what I did was, you know, when you deal with people that just cannot see the business side, because I was really dealing with like the editors at McGraw-Hill with my book and things like that, is I reached directly out to the vice president of partnerships at McGraw-Hill, which was, you know, McGraw-Hill is a multi-billion dollar educational publishing company. They basically publish all the textbooks and that kind of thing. Yeah. Any college book or whatever. Yeah. I know yeah. exactly what you're seeing. I've seen the logo in the bottom right corner on the back or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I pitched him an idea, which was to package a copy of the McGraw-Hill book with every single licensed course. 
with that idea, he was all about it. And he really had more of a business mindset and a business background. But I got really, really lucky because at this point, you know, I was so, so frustrated because this licensing deal was huge for me at the time. And this was actually before Shark Tank because I, again, didn't have as the bandwidth necessarily to spend the marketing dollars and the time to increase our online presence, but this larger company did. And so it was just really difficult having someone else own my material and have the copyright to it, which is why on all of our newest books, I've actually gone ahead and self-published them and put the copyright to Prep Expert so that we own all of our material. And I think that's a big takeaway for entrepreneurs is to try to own the intellectual property, you know, the things that you create, whether they're patents, et cetera, is not to necessarily license them out or have someone else own them because it can really cause a headache for you later on. Yeah. Would you say it was worth it with doing McGraw-Hill, like that first publishing that you did? Yeah, that's a great question, which is, I think originally it was worth it because, well, I should say it's worth it because it ended up working out. Right. If the licensing deal got killed by McGraw-Hill, it wouldn't have been worth it. But in the beginning, I think by having that McGraw-Hill book, it really helped creating me as an authority in the SAT prep space, which I talked about earlier. At first, I was really a nobody. I didn't really have a platform in the test preparation space. And now I think I'm probably one of the biggest names in the test prep space. And the McGraw-Hill book certainly helped put me on the shelves with every other big major player in the test prep space, whether it's Princeton Review or Kaplan or Bear or some of those other big test prep names. And so that was really big for me. But I think if they had killed the licensing deal because of their bureaucracy, which, you know, I think bureaucracy is like the root of all evil. As an entrepreneur, I mean, I absolutely hate it which is really interesting because I work in a hospital system, which is full of bureaucracy. Whereas I have a company where I sort of can make all of the major decisions and there's no bureaucracy. And so there's sort of this dichotomy, but I was able to get away from that bureaucracy at McGraw Hill. But I do think that the distribution in the beginning and the name brand and essentially building my platform through that was very helpful. So the key from this too, you're saying is that you're dealing with the licensing people there and it just wasn't working out and it's being an issue. And then you went to the higher ups, you're saying to actually get this thing done. Exactly. So sometimes you just have to ask forgiveness rather than permission, which means I just didn't want to work with the people that weren't seeing the bigger picture. And I just went ahead and asked people that had more decision-making power. And oftentimes, if you do that, that can really be huge because if you're working with folks that don't have decision-making power, you're oftentimes wasting your time. It seems you probably did this obviously in a calculated way, but also a smart way, right? Because this could maybe somewhat backfire just depending on, I guess, the relationship they have. So what's a good way of going about this? I mean, did you email the next person up when you found them on the totem pole? Or are you just looking on LinkedIn? Because this is a smart. If I'm trying to bring on somebody else or working with a company, anyone who has a company, and again, they're working with the gatekeeper, but really they don't have the decision-making skills and you can get to the next person, give us some tips on how to do that appropriately. Yeah, absolutely. Personally, in this particular case, what I did was I, I did go on LinkedIn and I found the VP of part, Global Partnerships at McGraw-Hill and got his email. And so that was practically how I found him. What I did when I pitched him was I really showed the value of the partnership. And I think that's really, really big. Anytime like you're going to pitch someone higher up or pitch anyone at all is to show the value that you're bringing and what it's going to do for them, right? Because 
oftentimes we're so concerned as entrepreneurs as to what someone else can do for us. You need to think about what you can do for them. So what I really did was I showed him that we could sell 100,000 plus books and that's what he really cares about, right? Is selling books for McGraw-Hill. I showed him that the company that I was going to license my material to was going to spend millions of dollars in marketing and that would help the book sales and help get my name out there and McGraw-Hill's book out there. And so essentially which what I do when I'm pitching, whether I'm pitching media or I'm pitching podcasts or I'm pitching anyone is, is really show the value that I can bring to them and why it's going to benefit them. And I think that's a big takeaway for entrepreneurs is don't pitch someone and say, you know, I'd love to be on your podcast because it'll be so great for me. <laughs> say, I'd love to share XYZ value with your listeners and really just share your value for what you can do for anyone when you're pitching something. Is there a special way that you make it stand out? Because for example, there's a PR person that put us together. And normally, I mean, dude, the PR pitches that I see are just like joke, five paragraphs, all four or five sentences. I'm not reading all this or 90% of them, I don't even believe, but obviously you're a little bit different case. But even when you're trying to sell it to those guys, I mean, any suggestions on ways that you make it work versus maybe other people want it or maybe mistakes that they might make? Yeah, absolutely. One big thing, like I mentioned, was always think about what is the person you're pitching value and how are you going to add that value? The second thing I do that I think has been really effective is, for example, when I'm pitching Business Insider, Inc. Magazine, Forbes, these are a lot of media outlets that I've been able to get articles into, is I pitch article ideas. And I'll say, you know, one of these three articles will work really well for your audience. For example, it might be one that might work for Inc. Magazine is how I turned my $900 startup into a $6 million business, right? I think that's really appealing article title for a reporter to write at Inc. And that catches their ear because, you know, they'd love to write that article. And then I take it even one step further is that once I hook them with a great article idea that I gave them is I'm willing to even write it for them and say so they can use any of this article in their article. And sometimes they'll use the entire article. Sometimes they'll use bits and pieces, but I try to make it as easy as possible because obviously no one wants to do work. And so if you're able to do a lot of the grunt work and hard work for others, that's worked really well. And that's helped me land hundreds of major media spots is doing a lot of the work for other people. So you think one of the things that makes you stand out is actually doing the work? I think that's the only thing that makes you stand out is, uh, you know, effort. A lot of people say, you know, what's the secret to success? And it's just putting in the 10,000 hours. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell, I love that book, Outliers, which to become a master at anything, you have to put in 10,000 hours. The only reason I'm good at SAT prep is I put in 10,000 hours studying for it, create, writing books, creating curriculum, et cetera. And the reason I'm doing dermatology residency is to put in my 10,000 hours and become an absolute expert. I'd love to start a company in dermatology in the skin space because I think it's a huge space, but I want to put in my 10,000 hours first to become an expert. And I think that's another big takeaway for entrepreneurs is that a lot of people want to just start businesses in whatever's hot. You know, maybe it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, cryptocurrency, whatever it may be, but they know nothing about that space. And so you can't start a company in something that you know nothing about because you have already lost the race. You've shot yourself in the foot before you've even started the race. What you want to do is start a company in something that you're an expert at that you know a lot about. And so for me, I want to become an absolute expert at something before I start a company and it's have a major advantage over the competition. I was able to be successful at an SAT prep business because I did spend hundreds, if not close to a thousand hours studying for the test before I started thinking about it or over a thousand hours writing the book. 
before I started the company. Hopefully, I'll be a successful entrepreneur at an eventual skincare company or dermatology company because I've spent thousands of hours in clinic working as a dermatologist. I think I've talked about this. Maybe I talk about it too much. It's just actually putting in the work. So I think that's obviously, like you even said, one of your keys, instead of, you could read article after article on like how to start a business or whatever, but until you actually start doing it, that's what distinguishes you that when you're not studying dermatology now, it's business. And it seems like these are your two main drivers of what you're focusing on and spending all your time on. And that's why you're good at it. Would you say that's right? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, Mark Cuban, uh, two ideas are nothing. It's all about execution. It's your execution. And I think that's another big thing for me is that I really only care about execution, both for myself as an entrepreneur. I don't care about your ideas. That's both for myself and my employees. I essentially have set up my company at Prep Expert with a productivity management sheet. It's very simple. It's a Google sheet, but it helps us essentially execute, 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 input the documents and deliverables and website links, et cetera, of things that we're executing on, things that we're actually getting done. And it doesn't count just to put together a document planning out ideas. We need to see the execution on it. So what are some of the hardest things that you've had to deal with? Because obviously, if you want to recap whatever we've talked about so far, because again, nothing seems super major. I mean, obviously the issue with your cousin and then the, the super beginning, but then I guess you're still able to get that book deal done as well with McGraw-Hill. So I mean, what else has there been that makes you sound somewhat human still? You know, I think anytime you're an entrepreneur growing a company, the biggest problem you're going to run into is people. And what I mean by that is someone once told me a quote is if you don't have people problems, you don't have problems. That really resonates with me because half of the problems that often occur at my company today or in the past have been because employees' personalities, you know, sometimes when you have a 10-person small company like that, personalities will crash. People are not always on the same page. And so for me, it's been trying to figure out how to manage a singular vision, get everyone on the same page, etc. An example would be an employee that I had for a long time. I think this is similar to my cousin where I kept them around a lot longer than I should have because I really liked that employee but she was really toxic to the culture of the company. You know, she would essentially undermine me, not necessarily do essentially what I had directed in the company, say things that were probably not appropriate in the company, et cetera. But I didn't find out about a lot of these things until too late. And, you know, I did like her as a person when, you know, I was interacting with her, et cetera. But that's one of the hardest things is knowing when to hire and knowing when to fire. Because when you get to having a company with employees, that is the hardest part, is when you're dealing with actual humans, actual salaries, actual livelihoods, right? Is you really like a person and so you keep them around, but they're not necessarily the best person for the job. And so it's trying to be as objective as possible and not let your personal feelings about a person affect whether you keep them around for the company and do what's best for the company. So how are you able to deal with that with like hiring new people now, or at least your staff that's doing it? Because whenever you're doing something, you make something automated on the internet or putting together certain maybe courses or whatever, there's a little projects. But again, the people factor is something you can't always figure out, right? They might be going through something personally, or maybe they have resentment, like you were maybe saying they didn't get all the equity that they thought they deserved, even though you don't really think so. Like, how are you able to deal with this now? Because again, it's always something that's kind of moving. It's never always the same. 
when I get started in business, some of the virtual assistants I had, it seems like everything perfect. But then over time, I keep mentioning this and I know over time, maybe they'll get bored with their job and then quality falls off and you know different things like that we don't always account for. So how are you able to do it a little bit better than you used to? Yeah. And there's really no secret here. Again, no secret. Yeah. I mean, I wish there was some key takeaway I could give to entrepreneurs on how to navigate it better. But I'm learning every single day on how to try to keep employees happy, keep them productive, etc. I mean, you can use all the tactics from increasing raises and bonuses financially. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think you have to have employees that really believe in the mission of your company. Our mission statement at Prep Expert is change your score, change your life. And that means we're helping students improve their test scores to win thousands of dollars in scholarships to go to college. You know, college is way too expensive now. And I really try to hire around people that believe in the mission. And I found that usually is the best formula for success in keeping employees motivated and happy is when they really believe in the mission of your company. And for a long time, as an early entrepreneur, I didn't think, I thought, you know, why do you need a company mission? Like that's so hocus pocus. Like you don't really need a mission. Like we're here to make money, right? Et cetera. And it's like, no, you really do need a mission. You need something that you believe in. You need something that your employees can believe in as a higher purpose because money can only motivate you yourself as an entrepreneur as well as your employees so much. There has to be something else larger that you're trying to do for the greater good of society. Let's be honest. Most people weren't taught how to invest in school. And if you're like me, you've probably wondered, why does Wall Street seem to win so consistently? Online Trading Academy wants you to start knowing now. As a leader in investing and trading education, Online Trading Academy teaches people just like you, step-by-step, a process designed to help you make the right moves in the financial markets. You'll discover common investor mistakes, learn about risk management skills, and how to develop a personal income and wealth education plan. It's simple to get started. Online Trading Academy's flexible learning style lets you take classes at one of their more than 40 financial education centers or in an online classroom from the comfort and convenience of your home. Students have given Online Trading Academy a 94% satisfaction rating based on more than 190,000 reviews. No one will ever care about your financial future as much as you do. So now is the time to start learning how education could help you take better control of your financial future from now on. And a strong economy is the best time to prepare for a bad one. What would you do if you knew skills designed to help you generate income and build confidence toward your retirement goals? Get started by joining more than 500,000 people who have attended one of their free classes. Their free online education class opened up my eyes on how the markets work today, and they can do the same for you. It's really a free, valuable education tool that you can't get anywhere else. They'll cover different trading and investing strategies you'll be able to use on a daily, weekly, or even annual basis. So sign up for a free three-hour introductory trading and investing class at otatrade.com forward slash YOLO. That's a free class in your area. Register at otatrade.com slash YOLO. You'll even receive their professional insider's kit just for attending. That's otatrade.com forward slash YOLO. Begin taking control of your financial future today with no obligation. 
Well, how about your team now? Like I said, you're pretty hands-off. I don't know how often you check in with them, how that relationship has kind of changed over time, and what they do to, again, make those hires. Because I've always heard if some of your employees, maybe they want to hire a friend, and maybe if they're able to hire a friend, maybe they enjoy work a little bit more. Again, all these things can backfire too, but has there been anything else that could help with the hiring process or trying to keep people happy that's worked that maybe you didn't think would necessarily have worked in the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question, which leads me into at one point when I had about around four or five employees rather than 10, I wanted to keep it a flat organization, which meant that everyone in the company was a director. And that was a huge headache for me. You know, it sounds like a good idea, like you're not putting one person above another, you don't have any politics, you think everyone would be happy by being on the same level. But it was a disaster. The reason it was a disaster was one is no one was in charge because I was at the headquarters. No one was really knew who to listen to and everyone was a director. And so that caused all kinds of chaos because they didn't have one boss or one person to really say yes or no to on decisions other than me. And that was a huge headache because then I would get constant emails and phone calls, documentation reports from different people. And so that made my life a complete headache because I was getting reports, phone calls, emails, text messages from five different people. And so what I would recommend and what's worked really well for me now is to have uh, one person who is in charge of the office who really resonates with your ethos. So for me, I have a vice president of Prep Expert, a VP, who really acts sort of in my place to manage the office. And we really agree so much on the entrepreneurial ethos that I have on how to run a company. And so I would try to find someone as similar to you as possible. And what's really nice now is instead of having five phone calls a week with different employees about what's going on in the company, now I just have one phone call a week for a couple hours that I check in with the VP on how the work is going, what projects are getting done, what tasks are getting done, et cetera. And that makes it much more efficient for me. In addition, the employees at the office are much happier because they now know exactly who to go to for decisions that need to be made on the spot. And I had a horrible company structure with a flat organization before. I wouldn't recommend it, but having a VP as your number two or a CEO or whatever it may be when you're the owner and you get to that point is absolutely crucial. That's important because I could definitely see why you'd want to make it flat where you're trying to, you know, everyone's not as motivated necessarily as you, right? Maybe they have other parts of their life that they enjoy and they're not all in on business or going to be a doctor, right? So I think even though it doesn't maybe fit your personality per se, once you put the structure in, did you notice changes right away versus the flat organization kind of that you had before? 100%. Yeah. I think people were happier because a lot of things that were frustrating people, like you talked about, is they just wanted a quick decision by someone and they needed it that day at that moment. And I wasn't always around. And so by making it flat and telling people, well, you're all the same level, the only person they could go to for a decision was me. And that really frustrated them. Now people are happier. They're much more productive and the company works so much better. So what's the best advice that you've gotten from Mark Cuban since he's been an investor in your company? Yeah, that's a great question. So some of excellent advice that Mark Cuban has shared with me is, for example, to know your worth. 
he really values the company highly. And one example of this would be he helped us negotiate. I mentioned sort of a licensing deal on our courses before. He doubled our licensing fee on that because he really threatened that we would pull our courses because they are so valuable from our licensor. The licensor saw how valuable our courses were to them and the revenue they were making. And so he was able to negotiate actually double our licensing fee. And so the real lesson I learned from him on that was know your worth. And I think that really speaks volumes to who he is as a business person is he really values his companies, values his products. I mean, that's how, you know, he was able to sell his company to Yahoo for $6 billion because he didn't say, oh yeah, I'll sell it to you for 6 million. Maybe some people would have been happy with that, but he really values his company and knows his worth. Is there any other surprises or advice that you've gotten from him that you weren't expecting? Mark Cuban is, he's really interesting and he is extremely nice. Like if I ask him to do any marketing or promotion, he'll record a video, he'll tweet, do things for reporters. But at the same time, I think the other big takeaway is he often says no on things too. He'll say, no, I just don't have the bandwidth. He'll say no. And I have a really hard time with that personally. Not that he's saying no, but when people ask me to do something, whether it's like, hey, Sean, can we do a phone call? I almost always say yes. I say yes to everything. And there's a strong power in no. And that's something I'm learning from him is just the ability to say no to people. Mark Cuban is obviously busier than I, and that's important for him to say no often because probably, you know, he's invested in hundreds of companies. People are asking him for things all the time. And so he knows when to say no and when to say yes. But I'm actually still learning this as an entrepreneur is saying no to people can be much more powerful. Of course, you have to know when to say yes as well. And Mark Cuban definitely does. I'd say on the big things, he's uh, said yes to me. But when it's little things that don't really matter, he often says no. And I need to do more of that in order to save my time and save my sanity. Is there any other questions that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have? I think the other thing that is really big that I want to share with people is, and it sort of goes back to the productivity, the time management is like, I think my number one secret to entrepreneurial success is self-control. There's a really famous Stanford marshmallow experiment that they did in the 70s, which tested self-control on little kids. What they did was they put one kid at a time, but they tested a few hundred kids in a room. And what they did was put them in a room with one marshmallow. And they told the kid, if you eat this marshmallow now, you can go ahead and eat this marshmallow. But if you wait 15 minutes, we'll come back and give you two marshmallows. And what they really were doing was to test how many kids had enough self-control not to eat the marshmallow immediately and wait for two marshmallows and sort of delay their gratification. And what they found was only one third of the children were able to have enough self-control not to eat the marshmallow immediately. But they tracked those children over time. And 20 years later, they found those kids who were more successful in their SAT and ACTs. They were more successful in their careers. They made more money. They had less drug and alcohol problems. They were more physically fit. And so having enough self-control is absolutely crucial to becoming a successful entrepreneur. Because for me, I have to have enough self-control not to necessarily go out every Friday and Saturday night, but some weekends I just have to work on my business and have the self-control to avoid a lot of the distractions that can stop you from creating a great business. And I think that's another big takeaway that I want to have for entrepreneurs is if you can practice self-control and harness that ability, you will be much more successful. Is there anything that has helped you with being able to practice self-control? 
I think meditation, I definitely do at least five minutes of mindful meditation every evening. And that really helps me zero in on, you know, I think during the day, we're just bombarded with notifications and things going on. But becoming mindful and meditating helps me keep more self-control during the day with everything that's going on. And in closing, I know you kind of briefly mentioned it, but since you're obviously still pretty young, I mean, what is your plan and goals for the future here? That's definitely the thing that everyone asks me. And I think that people ask me like, well, where do you see your business in five years? And I had a professor one time in business school say, you know, five-year business plans are basically five-year guesses. Like no one knows where their business is going to be in five years. And it's the same way for my career. I don't know exactly where my career will be in five years, but if I had to guess and give you a guess, I think I'd love to do sort of this new career that is essentially my own schedule, which is I'm not doing the same thing every single day. I think variety is the spice of life. And so I don't want to be doing the same thing every single day. So what I mean by that is I don't want to be in dermatology clinic every single day. I'd love to split my time, maybe one day a week doing dermatology clinic, one day a week working on Prep Expert, one day a week working on a new dermatology venture, one day a week working on investments, et cetera. Like, I think that would be so fun, so incredible, and just an amazing life to be able to do something new and different every single day that you're really good and passionate about. I do know that you at least have one book called Self-Made Success, a couple of years old that maybe, I don't know if that's a good plug or if there's any other way that we could help support you for you know sharing your story here with us. Yeah, absolutely. I think for entrepreneurs out there, the biggest way to support me would be to check out clearhatmarketing.com. That's actually another company I have, which we do digital marketing courses. So we teach everything from content marketing, conversion optimization, Facebook ads, Google AdWords, guerrilla marketing, lead generation, product marketing, PR and media, SEO, webinar marketing. I mean, digital marketing has been huge in my business at Prep Expert. We've created courses now on how we've used digital marketing to grow the company. So they can check out the courses at uh, clearhatmarketing.com. Like clear hat as in something you wear on your head? Exactly. Okay, cool. Yeah, clearheadmarketing.com. I mean, damn, dude, I didn't even know about this. <laughs> I'm using your LinkedIn profile, right? I mean, I've got mainly the prep expert and have your book here too, but I guess this is a whole nother thing. Yeah, I actually haven't updated my LinkedIn profile. It's no worries. Yeah. So, so if people go there, what's the best way that you're saying they can't come on here and they can learn a little bit more about how to market their company? Exactly. Yeah. I figure there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are looking to scale their company and grow their company. And ClearHat Marketing, we've packaged basically a 30-hour HD video course of me and my business partner, Adam Lawrence, teaching people you know, how we've used digital marketing to essentially 10x Prep Expert. Adam worked with me on Prep Expert and many other companies. And yeah, I think ClearHat Marketing would be a great way for entrepreneurs to learn how to scale their business. Cool. Well, thanks again for coming on. And if someone also wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. If they want to reach out to me directly, they can reach me on my email at Sean, S-H-A-A-N, at prepexpert.com. All right. Well, thanks again, Sean, for sharing your story. Thanks, Austin. It's been a pleasure. If you want to check out other Shark Tank companies we've had on this podcast, then be sure to check out these episodes during your next romantic walk on the beach. Episode 11 with Eli Crane of Bottle Breacher. Episode 35 with Jim Salikas of Cousins Maine Lobster. And episode 38 with Aaron Krause of Scrub Daddy. By becoming a Patreon member, you'll get these monthly exclusive episodes that only Patreon members get. 
And also by becoming a member, I mean, it helps us out financially and we do really appreciate that. But on top of that, it actually motivates us and my team because we actually get an alert notification on our phones every time we get a new Patreon member. So it really does help to know that we're actually helping you guys with your businesses. So uh, if you don't mind, check us out, become a Patreon member. And again, you'll get some cool perks as well. So thanks for listening to this interview.